welcome to True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. Episode 12, Guilty. Hey everyone. So today I'm going to play for you the closing arguments in the Michelle Martinko murder trial. First the prosecution and then we'll listen to the defense. I think you'll agree with me that this closing argument is enthralling. This is one of the most thorough, detailed prosecution closing arguments that I've ever listened to. It completely sums up the details of this trial, as a closing argument should, but you can clearly see why the jury came back with its unanimous verdict and why they did it so fast. There are so many things in this case that help reinforce that one biggest fact, which is the DNA. Nick Maybanks drives it home once again that there is absolutely no way Jerry Burns' DNA could have gotten into the crime scene unless he was there. Manchester, Iowa residents would become completely stunned when that verdict was read. Friends and family of Jerry Burns would be in disbelief that he was responsible for Michelle Martinko's murder almost 40 years prior. But DNA doesn't lie. Let's listen to the final day of Michelle Martinko's murder trial. After that, I'll talk about it with you. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. At this time, ladies and gentlemen, it is the time in the trial for each of the parties to present what's called a closing argument. Uh, Over the last seven, eight days, uh, you received a tremendous amount of information and evidence. And the closing arguments are an opportunity for each side to put that evidence into an order and to argue to you what each party believes that the evidence that's presented means and and its significance. Uh, Mr. Maybanks, do you wish to give a closing argument on behalf of the state? Yes, I do. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, good morning. I know you're all anxious to begin your deliberations, but... Please indulge the state this morning over the course of the next hour or so while we summarize what we believe the evidence has shown in this case. Ladies and gentlemen, over the course of the last two weeks, you have now heard and seen the evidence in this case. This is the opportunity for the state and the defense to contend to you what we believe the evidence has shown. What we believe are the reasonable inferences and conclusions that can be drawn from the evidence. You will make the ultimate decision. We contend. The evidence shows the defendant's guilty of murder in the first degree. On December 19, 1979, the world was Michelle Martinko's for the taking. Instead, she was taken from the world. The state has demonstrated to you, by evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, how she was killed and who killed her. The evidence has shown he was a young man back then, just a kid. Wished he could go back there and talk some sense into that kid. Out on his own for the night, Liked to drink a lot back then. It was close to Christmas, and he went to Westdale Mall to do some shopping, away from his young family for the night. She was a teenager, almost halfway through her senior year at Kennedy High School. A twirler, 
a concert choir performer, a thespian, a friend, a girlfriend, a sister, a daughter. She loved to dress up. She was popular with many different people in her class from different ages and different age groups. She had her close friends and she had acquaintances. She would stop and talk to anyone who would say hi to her. She was friendly to everyone, sweet, kind, funny, and smart. In a few months, she looked forward to moving on from high school to study interior design. That night was an ordinary night in her life, the life of a high school student. She went to a choir concert banquet. She saw one of her closest friends, Jane, who was there and hoped to hang out with her for a bit. But Jane had to do some homework. So Jane went home and she said hello to Jeff White in the parking lot and continued on to Westdale Mall. When he got there, he found that the new mall was rife with activity and young people, including young women. Some were in groups and some were alone. When she got to the mall, she saw some friends, Marty Miller, Tracy Price, and Todd Bergen. She talked to them about how she was looking for a coat for her mom that her mom picked out for her. They noticed she had some money on her and a purse. They offered her a dime to call her mom. She was alone. She then ran into Merlin Winkler and Andy Seidel. Andy had been her boyfriend at one point in time, and they were still close. Andy was there to pick out a fiber optic light for her that she wanted. The interaction was brief, and then they went on their separate ways. He noticed her alone. It was obvious because she was everywhere in the mall that night, on every level, on all sides, sometimes talking to people, but clearly she was alone. She continued on and saw an old friend of hers she hadn't seen for a while, Kurt Thomas, who was working at the Chess King. She hung out for a bit, accompanied him on his break. They walked together to the Orange Julius, where the two of them sat together in close proximity and talked. As with the others with which she interacted, she stood in close proximity to him the entire time. Kurt walked her to the door, believing she was going to leave for the night, and gave him what he tearfully recalled as that goodbye smile. The evidence shows that Kurt Thomas was the last person to talk to Michelle Martinko before she was killed. As he left her, she was alone again. But we heard that she did not exit from that particular door where Kurt walked her from, and two. She left through another exit where she was spotted by Cheryl Anders, who was in the parking lot. Cheryl recognized her from a distance because of her distinct look. Again, she was alone as she left. He saw her leaving and he followed her. He didn't have much time, so he descended quickly upon her as she got to the car. He put on gloves to protect his identity. He doesn't want to leave his fingerprints behind, but he would lament many years later that DNA wasn't a thing in 1979. She was walking in the direction where she parked her parents' car. She was carrying a shopping bag in her purse. She gets to her car, unlocks the back door, and places the shopping bag in the back seat driver's side, giving just enough time for the killer to approach her from a distance more quickly. She puts her bag away, gives him more time to approach, as she gets into the car and begins to start it. Unbeknownst to her, the killer's approaching more quickly at that time. She's getting ready to drive away. He's coming at her more quickly now before she drives away. Opens the car door, using his gloves, and leaving the imprint on the car door button. When he opens the door, he has to act fast. He needs to incapacitate her so she won't fight, so he can get what he wants. He has a knife with him to intimidate her, to get her to bend to his demands. All of a sudden, the door opens to the car. And she sees there's a man there. The man attacks her. He strikes her with the butt of the handle of the knife in the head, leaving a large bruise that caused internal bleeding. She feels the strike to her head and causes her to fall back on the car seat. She's taken entirely by surprise, but she knows that she has to fight to the extent that she can. He sees she's not immediately incapacitated. 
He displays the knife and struggles with her to hold her down on her back to get her to submit and stop fighting. He struggles to subdue her, but while doing so, realizes that she's seen him now. She is not submitting. She continues to fight, despite the knife that he has presented and brought to intimidate her. She's on her back now, and she's hurt. Her internal desire to live kicks in, and she begins to fight, but he's stronger than her. She can now see this man, and she does not know him. Her fear and terror intensifies, and her adrenaline kicks in. She must fight as she struggles with this unknown attacker that she has not seen before and that she now has seen, he becomes more aggressive. He has a knife and desperate to stop her struggle, he now has seen this has gone too far already. He drives a knife into her chest, not once, not twice, but multiple times. He knows he now must eliminate her because she can identify him. She fights all she can, but she feels the sharp edged blunt force of the knife being driven into her chest. This has gone too far now to stop. It's not just about incapacitating her to get what he wanted anymore. Now he must end what he started. He has a wife and family. He can't get caught, can't be identified, can't be arrested. Now he must kill her. Meanwhile, she's losing the ability to fight, but her pure will to survive kicks in and she continues to struggle, swinging her hands in front of her, turning her body to avoid the constant stabs and slices. Her blood is flying everywhere. She's weakening as her blood spills outside of her body and inside of her body, causing two-thirds the capacity of her blood to leave. Lost to the surrounding environment in the car and lost to her lungs. She's been stabbed 11 times in the face, the neck, and the chest. And he's inflicted a total of 29 wounds. He continues to stab her until she's motionless. She can no longer fight. She's dying. As a result of the fight and the attack, he realizes that he has cut himself and he now must attend to his wounds. Unbeknownst to him and the struggle with her, she has tossed and turned and he has tugged at her and stabbed her that he bled on the back of her dress. As he looks upon her in the mess in the car, he realizes he now must act in order to avoid detection. And the young lady who just moments ago was living the life of a normal high school girl, attending the choir banquet, shopping at the mall, talking to her friends, was now lifeless and motionless, lying in her blood in her parents' car in a cold parking lot of Westdale Mall with a complete stranger dying from her wounds. He considers driving the car from Westdale Mall to another location and briefly gains control of the operating system. But what's he going to do if he drives from that location? He'd driven there that night. He'd need to get back to the parking lot. And he's bleeding himself, and he needs to control his own wound. He drove himself to the mall, So if he drove away, he'd have to come back. They would be looking for the killer soon. If he were found walking in the area of the mall back to his car, he'd stand out glaringly as a suspect. No, he couldn't take the car. He had to leave. So he put the car back into park, and in doing so, he used the gear shift selector, smearing his blood and hers on the gear shift selector. He gets out of the front seat, pushes down the lock mechanism, and shuts the door, locking it, leaving blood on the outside of the door. As he shuts it, The back door through which Officer Kincaid was later able to access remains open with no evidence of blood on it. He leaves hurriedly back to his car, holding his wound to prevent it from oozing and dripping, gets into his car and drives back to Manchester, where he lives. He's home within an hour, far away from where Michelle Martinko lay in the car, beaten, stabbed, and by that point in time, dead. Just an hour and a half later or so, after all the customers had left West Hale Mall for the night, and most of the employees had left as well. 
Near 11 o'clock or so, Phoebe Smith leaves her job at Pier 1 Imports, drives to People's Bank to make the netly deposit, and sees in the back area of the parking lot in the northeast corner a vehicle that she recognizes as Michelle Martinko's parents' car, the car that Michelle drove frequently by itself. And unbeknownst to her at that time, inside of that vehicle lay Michelle's lifeless body, and along with it, 39 years of investigation and unanswered questions. Meanwhile, the killer would be able to go on with his life, raise his family, run a business, enjoy those years of his life. No doubt haunted by the prospect of one day receiving a knock on the door that would eventually come 39 years later. What choice would he have? He'd have to learn with what he did. He'd have to live with what he did. He would need to block out his memories. Michelle's body would later be discovered at, after approximately 4 o'clock a.m. in that same car in that same parking lot. And you heard from Officer James Kincaid, a career police officer on patrol who served for many decades. He was called to the scene to check for a car, and he found her body inside. He was able to access the car through the driver's side back door that had been left open when Michelle put her shopping bag in there. He looked inside, and he saw Michelle. It was obvious that she was dead. He contacted other officers to come to the scene and began the crime scene investigation and did not disturb the interior of the car in any way. You then heard that ID officer Richard Dick White then arrived. And you heard from Dick in this case, now 80 years old, testify to what he observed at the crime scene on December 19, 1979, like he had just been there the day before. He conducted a comprehensive examination of the crime scene, which was limited to the vehicle. Michelle's body was removed through the passenger side seat by EMTs, who took careful precautions not to disturb or contaminate the rest of the vehicle. Notably, her body was taken out the passenger side seat area of the vehicle, assuring there was no contact between her dress and the gear shift selector. There was blood everywhere from this attack on Michelle. It was on the dash, it was on the steering wheel, it was on the passenger side door and seat, it was on Michelle, it was on her dress, on the gear shift selector, and even on the car keys. The car was seized and analyzed at the Cedar Rapids Police Department, and numerous items were taken for further examination, which included her clothing, the black dress, her pantyhose, her underwear, as well as the black scarf that was viewed as an accessory to the dress. Future examination of the dress would reveal numerous locations where blood would be found. Evidence also included scrapings and a tape lift that was taken from the gear shift selector, containing what was visibly identified and later confirmed to be the presence of blood. The evidence will show that these scrapings were taken and placed into evidence at the Cedar Rapids Police Department, where they remained until approximately December 31st of 1996, when ID officer Dennis Murphy recovered and retained those items from evidence to take them to the DCI lab in Des Moines. The tape lift containing the blood from the gear shift selector was tested, elaborate foundation, and chain of custody was introduced in this trial to show that it, along with the dress, was properly preserved. The gear shift selector at the DCI lab, where it remained from the last time it was tested in 2002 until March of 2019, when it was shipped off to Bodie Labs. You heard from the pathologist in this case, Dr. Richard Feaster. From this testimony, you heard that she received numerous stab wounds, a stab wound that penetrated her right lung and two that penetrated her left lung, a wound identified as the fatal wound that penetrated her sternum and rib cage and pierced her aorta just above her heart. From his testimony, you learned that she also sustained a severe blow to her head that caused an approximate three to three and a half inch bruise and correspondent internal bleeding. 
The evidence showed, as I stated earlier, that she lost two-thirds of her blood capacity to the surrounding environment and to her lungs. From his testimony, you learn that based upon the trajectory of the wounds that she sustained, the assailant was facing her at the time of the attack. You heard her wounds were consistent with being pushed on her back and being attacked from the front. You heard the assailant was on top of her and coming down on her. And you heard that the amount of force required to inflict these injuries was significant. From his testimony, you learned that the evidence of a struggle took place and that Michelle had sustained numerous defensive wounds as well to her hands. The evidence showed this was a brutal attack with 29 overall wounds, 11 stab wounds, and the remainder of them being slice wounds and defensive wounds. You heard from Dr. Feaster's extensive training and experience that the evidence shows this attack was done in a manner that made it likely that the suspect who did it cut himself with the knife he used to stab Michelle Martinko. Fortunately, the Cedar Rapids Police Department did take steps to preserve what they could for later analysis. As I stated, extensive chain of custody evidence was introduced at this trial that demonstrated that the clothing, including the dress, was kept properly in police, state, and FBI custody from the time it was collected in 1979 until it came to court for this trial, and that there was no chance of outside contamination on this dress. No circumstance in this case, no serious event or chain of events was introduced that would explain how the DNA of Jerry Burns would end up on Michelle Martinko's dress after it was taken into police custody. Any potential circumstance that could be offered to explain how Jerry Burns' DNA arrived upon Michelle Martinko's dress or the gear shift selector after it was taken from the crime scene is not logical, it's not reasonable, it's not founded in the evidence, and quite frankly, it's not even within the realm of possibilities. Whether or not there was a documentation error on an evidence card, whether or not the state could present evidence that for 26 years the dress was checked every day while it was at the Cedar Rapids Police Department in the Evidence Bureau is not pertinent and germane to the issues in this case because there's no possibility that Jerry Burns' DNA could arrive on these items of evidence after they were taken into police custody. Also, based upon the defense's own theory in this case that you heard, that somehow a secondary transfer event occurred prior to when Michelle was killed that ended up with Jerry Burns' DNA being on this dress, their own theory makes any chain of custody issue irrelevant. The evidence shows no other items were contained within the package besides her own clothing. And therefore, there was no possibility of transfer of any other items containing any other foreign DNA. Only pure conjecture would result in a different finding. Most importantly, no circumstance has been reasonably presented in this evidence indicating any way in which the DNA of Jerry Burns would end up on her dress or any of her items of clothing other than it was there to begin with in 1979 when he killed her. Even more importantly, no circumstances have been reasonably presented in the evidence in this case other than by the state that he killed her, indicating how Jerry Burns' DNA also happened to end up on the gear shift selector that night. The search for the identity of the killer, Michelle Martinko, continued for decades. Once a DNA profile of a suspect was developed from the gear shift selector in the dress from the crime scene, approximately 161 individuals DNA was collected and compared 
to the profiles. The profile was also compared to millions of individuals in the CODIS system. Once the DNA profiles of the suspects were developed on the items of evidence, it was a huge break in this case. Investigators and crime lab criminalists, after multiple attempts, now had a suspect profile, just one suspect profile after years of searching. One suspect profile present at the crime scene on Michelle's dress, then dictated that the investigation now required that this person be identified. And those efforts continued for the next decade or so. We saw in States Exhibit 8 a number of individuals whose DNA was collected and compared to the crime scene DNA profile and they, <clears throat> in the manner in which they were eliminated. All individuals except for Mr. Burns. In 2008, after the profiles from the crime scene evidence were developed, a flood overtook the Cedar River and Cedar Rapids, limiting the ability of the investigators to be able to develop further DNA evidence from the physical items of evidence. Future examinations of the dress as what took place in 2016 revealed that it was not able to develop, they were not able to develop another profile from the dress. But it should be noted and emphasized that the flood in 2008 did not impact the evidence that had already been developed from the crime scene evidence. There's pictures of defense introduced. I believe they're B1, C1, and F1. You'll see when you go back to the jury for deliberations. And it should be noted, ladies and gentlemen, those photographs are post-flood photographs and do not represent the condition of any of the evidence at the time the profiles were developed. In 2016, the case was handed off from retired detective Doug Larison to Matt Denlinger. At first, the same investigative measures were undertaken. Develop suspects, compare their DNA, repeat, etc., etc., etc. Then, as you'll see in this stipulation that was agreed upon between the parties, Matt came up and upon a new service being offered by a lab out of Virginia called Parabon Nanolabs. And a reminder, this stipulation is only to be considered as evidence of how leads were developed in this case, not substantive evidence of guilt. Also, the manner in which this was done is not on trial. It's provided to show you how the investigators in this case connected the dots. We heard that individuals in GEDmatch, a public online DNA database, may not have known that their DNA was being used for law enforcement purposes, but we heard that DNA was publicly available for anyone to use. And again, ladies and gentlemen, whether or not permission was obtained is not an issue in this case. We heard on Ju July 19th of 2019, Parabon issued a report to Matt, and as a result of that collaboration the Cedar Rapids Police Department had with Parabon, Parabon suggested and directed the Cedar Rapids Police Department direct their investigation towards three brothers who were living in Manchester at the time Michelle Martinko was murdered. Donald Burns, Kenneth Burns, and the defendant, Jerry Burns. You heard investigators then developed a, a plan to collect covert DNA from these individuals. And then on October 29th, 2018, investigator Denlinger collected a straw used by the defendant at the pizza ranch in Manchester, Iowa, and sent it to the DCI crime lab in Ankeny. The evidence showed that comparison of that straw used by the defendant to the suspect male DNA profile on Michelle's dress revealed an outstanding development in the case. For the first time in the investigation, a suspect could not be eliminated. In other words, the DNA found on this straw was found to be consistent with the DNA at the crime scene. Meanwhile, the covert DNA collected from the defendant's brothers 
resulted in those items being eliminated as suspects, like the previous more than 161 suspects who were compared. You heard that later known, later known samples were collected from the defense brothers that were also eliminated as contributors to the profile. The evidence showed that a subsequent known buckle swab collected from the defendant himself was compared to the suspect male DNA profile, resulting in a finding that the suspect male DNA profile for Michelle's dress was consistent with the known DNA of the defendant. At every possible loci where results could be compared, the defendant's known DNA profile was found to be a match to the suspect DNA profile. And this is exhibit 11C1. Match, 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 all the way down where results could be compared. In other words, you heard the probability of finding this profile in a population of unrelated individuals chosen at random would be less than one out of 100 billion. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll touch upon this again in a little bit, the evidence overwhelmingly and irrefutably showed that the male DNA profile found on the dress of Michelle Martinko in an area that tested positive for blood was that of the defendant, Jerry Burns. In this case, we saw the defendant was approached and interviewed by the Cedar Rapids Police Department, Matt Denlinger and J.D. Smith, on the 39th anniversary of Michelle Martinko's death. In a video shown to you that is now in evidence for you to review, you saw statements made by the defendant that further demonstrate his guilt. The defendant acknowledged he was familiar with the murder of Michelle Martinko and acknowledged that he knew it had happened in December of 1979. He remembered it was a big deal back then. Pointedly and pertinently, ladies and gentlemen, when he was asked about this, he did not recall, oh yeah, I was there that night. Something somebody would certainly remember. Or even he was there any time near the time this happened. Finn acknowledged he lived in Manchester at the time and that he always have and has lived there. During the questioning that ensued during this interview, the defendant answered a series of questions that demonstrated that there is no support for the contention made in this case based upon what he said when he was first interviewed as to how his DNA somehow transferred to Michelle Martinko's dress or the gear shift selector. He told investigators he never worked in Cedar Rapids. He said in 1979 he had no reason to be in Cedar Rapids. He said he never worked at Westdale. He said he never did any jobs there. He was shown a picture of her. He said he doesn't remember her. He doesn't remember seeing there, and that he said he wasn't there. He was then told investigators had found some DNA. Was murdered uh, out in the parking lot there. And so they followed up on it for almost 40 years now. Mm -hmm. And so they've been just, you know, following up on, on people. And then more recently, we uh, had some of the evidence processed and we found some DNA. Mm -hmm. And so from that, we've kind of been reaching out to all these people that are in the reports and just kind mm -hmm. of comparing them to see if we can find a match. And just so far, we just have not found anyone in those reports that we matched mm -hmm. with. So you saw his reaction when he was told the DNA was found on the scene. Then Matt drops the bomb he hadn't heard yet, but he had to have feared for years. I'm just thinking, you know, we we kind of know going in that this is probably going to be a match. Oh, really? Yeah. Why would that be? I'm just thinking. We kind of know already this is going to be a match. You didn't hear a response that one would expect from a person who was just implicated in a homicide. Oh, no way! Can't be me! You gotta be kidding me, is this a joke? Oh, really? Uh, why would that be? 
Matt then states, the reality is we are not here on a whim. We are here to confirm what we already know. We know it will be a match to the DNA on file. And to that response, we then heard another response that was also peculiar. Again, we didn't hear no way, not a chance, can't be me, not possible. We heard an inquiry instead that one would make if they were actually concerned their DNA would be a match. The reality is we're not, we're not here on a whim. We're here to confirm what we already know. I already collected some DNA from you that you got rid of before. And so uh, I'm telling you, Jerry, I already know that your DNA is going to match the, the DNA that we have on file. Just what would I have got rid of? Just what would I have got rid of? Not, not a chance. Can't be me. Not my DNA. What did I get rid of? You then heard Matt say the reality is... We have it there, and we know you were there. We don't know why it happened. There might be an explanation that would make this not a terrible thing. And to that response, we then heard a response that was also peculiar. Again, didn't hear no way, not a chance, not me, not possible. I don't have a why because I didn't do it. Here's what we heard. How would we get your DNA at the crime scene there, Jerry? I don't know. Test it, see if it is. No, 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 we did. How would it be there, Jerry? I don't know. What happened that night? Wait for the test to come back. Asking for an explanation of why this happened again. Not, I don't have a why because I didn't do it. I don't know. How will we get it there? I don't know. Test it and see if it is. And then you heard a response of a man knew he had been caught but wanted to buy some time. Wait for the test to come back. Test it and see what happens. Through that question and the subsequent answers in that interview, investigators would then systematically eliminate any other potential scenarios that could explain an innocuous transfer or secondary transfer event that took place. Matt said, is it possible you were out there and ran into some girl? Fennett, not possible. Possible you ran into her and said hi? Not possible. Possible you ran into her at the Orange Julius and said hi? Get into the wrong car, accidentally run into a young girl, say hi to any young girls? No, 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 no. Questioning continued. Did you go to any bars? Didn't go to bars, not that I can think of that time in my life. No substance abuse problems, but drank a fair amount back then when he was younger. More directly, we heard Matt ask the defendant what happened that night, and the defendant responded with another peculiar response, one not indicative of someone who was positive that he had not killed a young girl that night. Do you think that may, that may have contributed to what happened that night? I don't think anything happened that night. I don't think anything happened that It's not a hard question. Then Matt confronted him with Michelle Martinko's picture, black and white version of this. So take a good look at this picture. Really make sure this is someone you don't know. Then Matt asked a very simple question with a very simple answer. Did you murder someone that night, Jerry? Test the DNA. Jerry. Test the DNA. Why did this happen, Jerry? Folks, that's a yes or no. Did you murder someone that night? Test the DNA. Well, guess what? We did. And guess what? It's Jerry Burns' DNA. Then we saw the entire video of the transport of the defendant to the Cedar Rapids Police Department. We saw that not one time during that conversation did the defendant deny killing Michelle Martinko. You watched the whole video, but the state contends to you that the pertinent interactions took place toward the beginning at approximately 11 minutes and 28 seconds into the video at the time of 1.29, when Matt asked the defendant to explain what was going on that night and what was in his mind. Matt said, help me understand what was going through your mind. Defendant said, I don't recollect. 
do you think it's possible this happened and you don't remember any of it? That's kind of defendant. I don't know. I'm sure something like that would be, would be possible to block out. Yeah, I think that would be possible to block out, for somebody to block out. Matt says, what's that? Defendant says, block out. Matt said, you think you may have blacked out? Yeah, I don't, I don't think you probably blacked out either. Defendant said, no, I didn't say blackout. I said you blocked things out of your memories. Oh, you blocked things out. I got you. I got you. I'm with you now. How was everything going at that time? I don't know. I don't know. You're only 25. You're an old man. Whole world apart now, right? Yeah. Wish you could go back there and talk some sense into that kid. Huh? Two young kids at home. Help me understand what was happening. Help me understand, Jerry. I don't know. Then we heard Matt brought this uh, statement back up at the station and reminded the defendant what he had said during the transport. The defendant confirmed he said it and confirmed that there are some traumatic things you just block out. In this case, we heard from a man named Michael Allison. What did we learn about Mr. Allison? We learned he served our country overseas in uniform in Iraq. We learned that after two years of deployment, he returned to the United States, tried to start a life like many of us have, spouse, kids, job, but also like many people we know in our lives, he fell into the grips of substance abuse. Came involved in not only the consumption of illegal drugs, but the delivery and sale of drugs. And nobody up here on this table is defending anything that Mr. Allison did. Some pretty bad stuff. His path crossed that of the defendant, having been housed in the same cell block together. As we heard, and as we all saw when he testified in this case, the defendant viewed Mr. Allison as what Mr. Allison said. He described him as a normal guy, not like some of the others in jail. And so he became someone the defendant became close to and opened up to. Mr. Allison reported that he considered the defendant to be a father figure and thought he was a pretty calm guy at first, and the defendant would refer to him as son on occasion. Those interactions were steady at first, chatting while playing pinochle, discussing their life experiences. But as we heard one day, when Mr. Allison was speaking about the regrets that he had in his life, about becoming wrapped up in substance abuse and all the bad decisions he'd made, to that the defendant would tell Mr. Allison that his only regret or his regret he had was not cleaning up his mess. Not regret for killing a young girl, regret for not cleaning up his mess. The defendant told Mr. Allison that in 1979, DNA wasn't a thing. On January 11, 2020, just a little over a month ago, having seen an article about this case in the newspaper, Mr. Allison asked the defendant in jest if he'd autograph it. Surprisingly, the defendant not only autographed it, but inscribed with a cryptic message, also indicating a sense of pride to my favorite son, Michael, signed Jerry Burns. Video evidence, not containing audio, but showing what transpired was introduced and played at trial, showing this interaction take place. Mr. Allison reported to us at trial the defendant's rendition of his encounter with Matt Denlinger in the hallway during a previous court appearance where the defendant said he knew they may have got him, but he wasn't going to bow down and looked Matt right in the eye. And then we heard from Matt that he recalled this very same interaction take place and that the look they exchanged was more than a passing glance. And for the record, there's evidence shows no prior collaboration between Matt and Mr. Allison. The state submits that this, like the video and the newspaper copy, supports Mr. Allison's testimony. Mr. Allison then testified he asked the defendant directly whether he did this, to which the defendant replied eerily, I can't talk about it. When asked, Mr. Allison reported the defendant has never said, like he never said to Matt in the transport car, that he didn't do it. Mr. Allison reported to us when asked what the defendant indicated as to his feelings about the potential outcome of this case, the defendant, re 
the defendant provided a response that provides us some insight into his mind. Defendant reported, no matter the outcome, he felt he had won because he got to raise his kids for the last 40 years. And then finally, Mr. Allison reported to us what the defendant said that led him to reach out through investigators and prosecutors to tell us what happened. He said while playing cards with the defendant, as they often did, Mr. Allison said he hit a hot streak, began beating the defendant. And the defendant made a comment to him that further revealed the manner in which the defendant views the evidence of what he did 40 years ago. He said to Mr. Allison, if you keep beating me, I'm going to have to invite you to the mall. Mr. Allison reported he was disgusted enough by that comment. That was the final straw. So he reported what the defendant had been saying without a plea agreement, without any agreement as to reduction in sentence. This man took the stand, came forward, and told us what the defendant said to him. Now I want to summarize for you, uh, if you'll please continue to indulge me further, what the experts said in this case, starting with Michael Peterson, who in 1997 examined Michelle's dress. On Michelle's dress, a portion of an obvious stain near where she had been stabbed was extracted for DNA and a known sample of her blood was developed. <clears throat> he also examined Exhibit I, which was just described as a tape lift from the blood observed on the shift selector. Presumptive testing showed this area contained blood and no other presumptive tests were done. The gear shift selector showed imbalances indicating a mixture of DNA from two sources. Then we heard from Linda Sauer who said, it wasn't until DNA that we could establish identity. In 2002, we heard that criminalist Linda Sauer first examined Michelle's dress and was able to identify a complete result of what was determined to be her blood and that subsequent examinations, including that one, would reveal eight more locations that showed the presence of what was believed to be her blood on that dress. We heard that Sauer examined what was described as blood from the gear shift selector. Again, what was determined to be the tape lift from the gear shift selector where blood was observed. She noted what was described as blood from the gear shift selector was a smear, not a tight-held stain. She used a cotton tip swab moistened with distilled water and collected a sample finding results at nine of STR loci in the sexine locus. And screening tests again indicated the presence of blood at that location. The results showed the major contributor of that location was Michelle. She could conclude that the minor contributor at that location was a male. Of the loci that she was able to develop from that male minor contributor, the results found that they matched the same loci of the male profile she would later find on F5. In 2003, the dress was resubmitted to Linda, and more areas were found that tested positive for the presence of blood and were consistent with each other. She used a high-intensity light at different wavelengths, and we also heard that in 2003, she noted the presence of a few spermatozoa in her underwear. And folks, I want to make a couple points about that. One, there was no indication from this attack that Michelle Martinko ended up being sexually assaulted. The source of the sperm is not and has never been implied to be the person who killed her. Further speculation we submit to you of the source of this sperm can only reasonably conclude that at some point previous to her being killed, she may have had a sexual encounter with the male. Nothing else. Then in 2005, Linda examined the dress using the intense light beam to try to locate additional possible stains. She has selected stains from a wide, as wide an area as she possibly could, finding stains on the front, the side, and the back of the dress. All those areas tested positive for blood. And that's when she found what notoriously became known in this case as stain F5. As we heard repeatedly in this case, 
F5 did indicate positive for the presence of blood. And at F5, she found what her report revealed was a partial male profile with complete results at 11 loci and partial results at an additional two loci. She then reported based on generally accepted standards for DNA profiling as recommended by the FBI for certified laboratories that fewer than one in 100 billion unrelated individuals would have this same partial male profile. And this is a significant finding because as she explained to all of you, if you have a result that is found in fewer than one in 100 billion individuals, and there's only about 8 million people on earth, the probability of finding two is so small it can be discounted. And as she told us during trial, the importance of finding this profile is now investigators had a profile to compare to other individuals to find a suspect. She found that the results at F5 indicated a minor contributor whose DNA was mixed with the male major contributor, and that the minor contributor was consistent with the DNA of Michelle Martinko at two alleles and that she could be the source. The gear shift selector sample was also compared to the partial male profile. Linda found that the donor of F5 could not be eliminated as the male contributor to the gear shift selector. Importantly, from her examination, a fact remained in this case that never changed, and that's that there was only two single-source profiles developed from the evidence in this case. By single source, this means only two individual strands were detected. Two individuals, two people. One female, Michelle Martinko, one male, later found to be Jerry Byrne. We heard from criminalist Mike Schmidt, who's been with the DCI lab since 1998. He began working on this case in approximately January of 2017 and participated in the elimination of several suspects' DNA through profiling and comparison. We also heard that he was able to determine through his investigation the profile developed from the hair root that was found in Michelle's vehicle was found to be that or consistent with that of Mike Weirich, Michelle's boyfriend at the time. He then became aware of Matt's efforts to collaborate with Parabon and went along with it. And on October 13th, 2018, he received a straw collected after immediately being used by Jerry Burns for analysis, and he told us his rendition or his response to the findings that he believed him at the time to be unbelievable. Investigators were able to find a person with the profile that could not be eliminated as a major contributor to F5. Again, at every location where results could be compared, the profile developed from the straw matched the profile from the major contributor from F5. In other words, they had their guy, but they needed a known sample. He also heard and received evidence that a straw used by Kenneth Burns was collected and submitted. As well as, Kenneth Burns, as well as Kenneth Burns' known DNA. That was referred to as State's Exhibit 11B. However, having learned that a known sample is needed to eliminate a person or contributor in the interest of expediency, that report was not discussed or introduced, but instead you saw in State's Exhibit 11D, as in dog, that Kenneth Burns' known DNA was collected and he was eliminated as a contributor to F5. You also learn from Schmidt's testimony as well as State's Exhibit 11D, again as in dog, that Donald Burns' known DNA was collected and compared to F5, resulting in Donald Burns being eliminated as a contributor to F5. Finally, from Michael Schmidt, you heard that on December 19, 2018, immediately after he was interviewed by investigators, the DNA of Jerry Burns was collected and submitted directly to the DCI lab. And on January 9, 2019, as set forth in State's Exhibit 11C, Schmidt found that the partial DNA profile of the major contributor previously developed from stain F5 from the black dress was consistent with the known DNA profile of Jerry Burns. Again, with the probability of finding this profile in a population of unrelated individuals chosen at random 
to be less than one in 100 billion. Further elucidating the significance of these findings, Schmidt told us that he's only ever seen a profile of related individuals match at six or seven alleles, far, far less than what we see in these samples. He also told us that only identical twins share the same profile. There's obviously no evidence that Mr. Burns has an identical twin. And as we heard, his closest relatives, his brothers, were positively eliminated. So safely, we can conclude, and we should in this case, that this profile was not that of a relative of Mr. Burns, that it was indeed Mr. Burns. In other words, given the findings, the evidence showed that the DNA from the major contributor to F5 stain that tested positive for the presence of blood was that of Jerry Burns. The we also heard from Christina Nash. She's a senior DNA analyst at Bodie Lab. <laughs> lives in Lorton, Virginia, far, far away from Cedar Rapids and Davenport. No interest in this case other than science. And like the rest of the state's experts, she's also a certified forensic DNA analyst who actually works in the laboratory. As we heard, Bodie Technologies receives requests from agencies all around the country for all kinds of cases from both sides of the aisle, and that at times Ms. Nash even works on the Innocence Project. She conducted an analysis of the same extract that was taken from the gear shift selector, and she developed a profile from it. She received the known buckle swabs of the defendant and developed a profile from that as well. She conducted a different analysis that we learned about called a YSTR analysis, intended to focus upon the Y chromosome and develop a profile of the male contributor to the sample. And she only found one single source profile from the analysis, meaning one individual strand from one male. And as you saw in state's exhibit number 12, she was able to develop and compare these profiles and compile some significant results. This is the allele table. Results are compi compiled at 23 different locations. And going locus by locus in every location, she found there to be a match between the profile developed on the gear shift and that of Mr. The statistical method she used, she referred to as the counting method. It's a little bit different than the random probability match, but significant nonetheless. She searched for the profile in the YSTR databases used by Bodhi. And applying their confidence level, she was able to conclude at a 95% confidence level that we should expect to see this profile in only one in 1,773 U.S. males. In other words, 99.94% of individuals would be excluded. We also heard from defense expert Michael Spence. And here are some of his quotes. He said, transfer depends on contact and proximity. And boy, doesn't it. He said, when we presented the scenario of an individual, a killer hovering over the top of a victim, as in this case, that it would be a near absolute certainty that that person's DNA would end up on the victim. Then he said it was within the realm of possibilities that his DNA ended up there through an unknown secondary transfer. We asked Dr. Spence, what's not within the realm of possibilities? And he said, that's a good question. Then we shared a conversation about some of the deeper aspects of life and how we may all be living in a dream, something along those lines. Well, I think we all know this isn't true. But you watch, folks. You watch. In a moment here, when you get to hear from the defense, you may hear about some endless possibilities. We submit to you those will not be based upon the evidence, but will be based upon the depths of imagination. He also said, as we noted, there's no question that the male DNA at F5 is clearly consistent with Jerry Burns. Their own, their own expert said that. Then we heard a tale of a fingernail secondary transfer story, which, although riveting, was not at all comparable to this case. There exists no evidence in this case other than that Jerry Burns killed Michelle Martinko of a situation where there could have been a secondary transfer like what was revealed or what was discussed in that story. In that story, there was an obvious link that was un uncovered. In this case, there's zero evidence. 
of any link besides the fact that he killed. Indeed, we heard Michelle Martinko had close contact with all sorts of kids that night and other individuals at the banquet at the mall. And not one spurious bit of DNA from any of those other individuals was found on Michelle's clothing. We heard Spence say and claim that it was best to repackage items separately after they were found packaged together in a laboratory. But then we heard from the director, the supervisor at the DCI labs, who again has actually worked in a lab over the last 38 years, disagree and say that we don't do that in our laboratory because we want to protect chain of custody. And then in a nod to some prior work that Dr. Spence did in a civil case, he introduced us to the product rule where he could determine the random probability of finding the same profile in two locations at a crime scene, resulting in a pretty impressive number using the figures in this case, which was something along the lines of 1,773,100 billion, something like that. But we, quite frankly, don't need that number to show you what we've proven in this case. We heard from Paul Bush, criminalist supervisor at the DCI lab. His resume is extensive and covers many areas, including DNA forensics and also crime scene analysis. He was a crime scene analyst for 25 years and worked over 200 cases of crime scenes. Dr. Spence told us he never worked a crime scene when he was working for the Indiana State Lab. He also spent 10 years as a DNA technical leader working in quality assurance and told us that he performed technical review of over a thousand, thousands of cases over his career. Paul said science can put an individual at a certain place based on DNA. He told us that based on Linda's results on quantitation, of the amount of DNA, there was more than enough there to perform an analysis and that no additional cuttings were necessary. He also told us, told us that the size of the blood stain does not correlate to the amount of DNA in the stain. So inferences from the table that was produced in Defendant's Exhibit 10-1, Linda's document, should not be drawn from the concentration of DNA as to the size of the original blood stain. He told us, based upon this review of this case and his vast amount of experience, the most scientific explanation of how DNA consistent with that of Jerry Burns could have ended up on Michelle's dress was based upon information in the case the victim was stabbed. There was evidence of a struggle in her fighting off the assailant. Screening tests on the area where the DNA was found indicated the presence of blood. The results we have are consistent with blood from a perpetrator bleeding on that dress, and the likely explanation of the presence of his blood would be that he bled from cutting himself during the stabbing. The major profile of the DNA developed from the likely blood source is consistent with Jerry Burns to an impressive degree. And finally, he confirmed from the review of all the findings in this case, blood was found on nine areas of Michelle's dress. One female profile was developed. Eight of those areas were the same and were determined to be the blood of Michelle Martinko. And one male profile was developed that was found to be consistent with Jerry Burns. And the DNA from no other person was found on that dress. So, ladies and gentlemen, the evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates what we submit to you are four key facts in this case. And as a point, these are what we believe to be four key facts, but even without these four key facts, there's plenty of evidence to show that the defendant committed this offense. First one, the defendant's DNA was found at two locations at the crime scene. Second, we believe the evidence has shown the DNA found came from his blood. Third, the defendant bled from cutting himself when he repeatedly stabbed Michelle Martinko to death. He bled on Michelle Martinko and smeared his own blood on the gear shift selector. The defendant acted with deliberation, premeditation, the specific intent to kill, and malice aforethought. I want to take a moment here and talk about a few jury instructions. First, I believe this is instruction number six. You must determine whether the defendant is guilty or not guilty from the evidence in the law. Next one, instruction number nine. A reasonable doubt is one that fairly and naturally arises from the evidence in this case 
or lack or failure. A reasonable doubt is a doubt based upon reason and common sense and not the mere possibility of innocence. If, after a full and fair consideration of all the evidence, you are firmly convinced of the defense's guilt, then you have no reasonable doubts, and you should find the defendant guilty. You must base your verdict only upon the evidence. A theme develops throughout these Evidence is testimony in person, exhibits, stipulations, so on and so forth. Instruction number 12, decide the facts from the evidence. Consider the evidence using your observations, common sense, and that's all we're asking you to do here. Base your decision on your common sense and the evidence. The defendant's DNA was found at two locations of the crime scene. Look at the profiles. Look at how they match at every loci. Consider the random match probability statistics. Consider the testimony of all the experts, including Dr. Spence, and that there was no real dispute with the determination that the DNA found at F5 on Michelle's dress was indeed the DNA of Jerry Byrne, and no real dispute that it was his DNA on the gear shift slip. The evidence overwhelmingly and indisputably shows this is his DNA. The DNA comes from the defendant's blood. Presumptive tests at both F5 and the gear shift selector showed the presence of blood. The presence of another fluid can only not be ruled out because no other tests were done, not because there is evidence of other fluids. Therefore, we submit to you there is no evidence beyond mere conjecture that his DNA originated from any other fluid at those locations. Conversely, all the evidence in the surrounding circumstances in this case of Michelle's death, the, statements, the defendant's statements he made during his interviews, or more so his lack of denial, the statements to Mr. Allison, the evidence as a whole all support a finding that his DNA at the crime scene originated from blood. The most scientifically supported theory is that the defendant's DNA at the crime scene originated from his blood. The near absolute certainty that Dr. Spence offered us to explain the presence of suspect DNA at the crime scene involved this very scenario when we presented it to him and supports his DNA being there as a result of blood. Conversely, Dr. Spence and the defense can only point to the realm of possibilities to explain that his DNA arrived there through some undefined secondary transfer event. Next, the defendant bled from cutting himself when he repeatedly stabbed Michelle Martinko to death. He bled on Michelle Martinko and smeared his own blood on the gearshift selector. There being no alternative theory to support or supported by the evidence as to how the defendant's DNA from his blood or any fluid, really, arrived at the crime scene. And given that Michelle's blood and DNA is mixed with his, the evidence shows this only could have happened because he cut himself when he repeatedly stabbed her, and that she bled from being stabbed, and that his DNA mixed with her blood after it shed from her body. And her blood was mixed with his DNA as he smeared it on the gearshift selector when he could, took control of the vehicle. The defendant acted with deliberation, premeditation, the specific intent to kill, and malice of forethought. I want to go over instruction number 14. Where two or more alternative theories are presented, or where two or more facts would produce the same result, the law does not require each juror to agree as to which theory or fact leads to his or her verdict. It's the verdict itself, which must be unanimous, not the theory or facts upon which it is based. Why am I bringing this up at the beginning of my closing argument? provides you a scenario that we believe supports what occurred in this As you discuss this case and as you deliberate, there may be different ways in which you conclude happened or which you believe happened, but if they lead to the same result, 
and the fans guilty, you don't have to agree on how it happened. You don't have to agree on the theory as long as you believe all the elements have been proven. This is a long one. Malice. A state of mind which leads one to intentionally do a wrongful act to the injury of another out of actual hatred or with evil or unlawful purpose. Malice of forethought is a fixed purpose or design to do some physical harm to another which exists before the act is committed. And it doesn't have to exist for any particular length of time. Willful means intentional or by fixed design or purpose, not accidental, deliberate, weigh in one's mind, consider, contemplate, premeditate, think or ponder upon a matter before acting. This is important. Deliberation and premeditation need not exist for any particular length of time, but must exist before and at the time. We don't have to show that there was some kind of blueprint or plan drawn up for this. Just so that at the time the act occurred, right before or at the time the act occurred, that there was deliberation and premeditation and malice forethought. If the person has the opportunity to deliberate and uses a dangerous weapon against another, resulting in death, you can infer that just by use of the dangerous weapon, malice, premeditation, and specific intent to kill. So folks, this is really kind of an easy one. The actions of repeatedly stabbing and attacking Michelle in this way can be, can, can be construed in no other reasonable way than being done with malice, the specific intent to kill, deliberation, premeditation, over and over and over again. Submit to you, this will be the easiest element for you to find. So we believe that we've proven to you that the defendant is guilty of murder in the first degree, that on or about December 19th, 1979, the defendant stabbed Michelle, that Michelle Martinko died as a result of being stabbed, and that the defendant acted with malice of forethought, willfully, deliberately, premeditatedly, and with the specific intent to kill Michelle Martinko for all of the reasons that we've discussed here today. Now that we've proven that Jerry Burns killed Michelle Martinko, you may still wonder why. As we discussed when we first started this case during jury selection, the state is not required to prove motive. And that makes sense because it's a deep topic. As I'm sure the defense will remind you soon, we all live in a world with each other where we intersect on a daily basis. We all carry with us not only our unique and individual DNA, we also carry our story. <clears throat> Memories of joy, happiness, that bring us back to the better times in life, and memories of sadness, tragedy, and trauma that haunt us and remind us how life can sometimes be cheerful and life can sometimes be tragic. Look around you and you realize you may not have a full comprehension of what those around you have been through and what defines them. Those around you may not be able to tell you what defines them because of how complex their lives have been. The witnesses in this case carried their story with them for 40 years. You wouldn't know it if you saw them, they look like you and me, each other, work, have spouses, have kids, maybe grandkids. We don't know a lot about them in passing, but undeniably, we all carry a story with us. Some of those stories you may never, never be able to predict. Some of those stories may be unbelievable just by looking at somebody. Some of those people have to live with the stories of their past and learn to cope with them, to cope with what happened. In the cases of the witnesses in this case, Civilian and law enforcement, criminalist, retired, active duty, they all live with the knowledge that they possess about this case. And in the case of Mr. Burns, we submit to you, they learn to live with what they did. So people learn to live with their past. They learn that they can either take those events and let them define them, or they can do the opposite. And sometimes the only way they can live with their past is to block it out. Point is, you never can tell by looking at somebody what's occurred in their life to bring them in front of you at that point in time when you interact with them. When you, get, when you confront them, you can never be sure what people are capable of. 
That's the thing about human behavior. People are capable of the kindless, kindest, gentlest, most loving things. But people are also capable of the most evil and sordid. We make decisions every day that affect the lives of others around us. As a result of those decisions, many things can happen. And as a result of the more severe decisions, as in this case, some people live and some people die. But the ramifications of those decisions are always there. They may be immediate, they may be delayed, but the facts and circumstances that underlie them do not go away. They remain, as science has taught us, undetected and undiscovered until they're brought to light and can no longer be denied. Thank you, Mr. Maybanks. Ladies and gentlemen, I am going to give you a 10-minute recess. Um, we will be back to hear any uh, the closing arguments on behalf of Mr. Burns given by Mr. Spees, but we'll, we will be in recess for 10 minutes. What are you doing on Saturday, April 16th? Nothing? Something? Cancel your plans and come hang out with Captain from True Crime Garage, Bob Ruff from Truth and Justice, and me, Kelly from True Crime IRL. That's right, Saturday, April 16th, doors open at 7 p.m., show is at 7.30. We're going to be live at the Wealthy Theater in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You're not going to want to miss this unique and one-of-a-kind event. We always have a phenomenal time at these live shows, and we're going to be doing a meet and greet afterwards. You're really not going to want to miss it. So again, that's Saturday, April 16th in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Wealthy Theater. You can buy tickets at CaptainFatHands.com slash events, or you can go to True Crime IRL for more info as well. But again, buy tickets at CaptainFatHands.com slash events. Until next time, lock your doors, people. Bye-bye. The record should show that members of the jury have returned to open court. Uh, counsel and Mr. Burns are present. We are ready at this time to hear any closing arguments from Mr. Spees on behalf of Mr. Burns. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> May it please the court, counsel, and Jerry Burns. I am uh, pleased to be here to speak on behalf of Jerry Burns. When I had a chance to speak with you about two weeks ago, I talked about the encounters that we have day to day, people to people, people to objects, objects to people, and the exchanges of genetic information that we share every day, and how that genetic information tells us much about what we are, but not necessarily who we are or where we've been. Much of this case, as we've heard over the last two weeks, talks about the diligent efforts made by law enforcement over the past 40 years to try to uncover the secret about who killed Michelle Martinko. And there is no criticism about the diligence of that efforts. But importantly, as I mentioned to you again two weeks ago, it's our contention that the evidence shows how that path, that investigation took a divergent turn, and that turn has inevitably led wrongly to Jerry Burns and why Jerry Burns is not guilty. Michelle Martinko was a vivacious, attractive, talented young woman in the, the bloom of life. And in 1979, when she went to the uh, Sheraton Hotel in Cedar Rapids, Iowa for the choir banquet, and then either by boredom or in search of a coat that had been set aside for her by her mother to Westdale Mall, 
she had every expectation of a full and vibrant and enriching life. Now we know from the evidence in this case that the investigators showed and were able to determine, and from the testimony of her friends, that she went to the Westdale Mall, she encountered a number of people that she knew, either from school or elsewhere, and during the course of that time, she spent uh, 40 to 50 minutes with Kurt Thomas. And you remember Mr. Thomas talking about how he had left his job uh, there at the Westdale Mall, that they walked around the, uh, the mall together, went to the Orange Julius where Mr. Thomas had something to eat. We also know from uh, Andy Seidel, Michelle's former boyfriend, that about four days before her death, she had expressed to him her fear and her concern about a grotesque or an ugly man who had been stalking her at her job at another mall. But as Kurt Thomas and, and Michelle walked around the Westdale Mall, went to the Orange Julius, sat down with Mr. Thomas eating. We know that they sat on a chair or they sat on a bench. Mr. Thomas, we know, had something to eat. We don't know whether Michelle had anything to eat, although the autopsy report showed that she had undigested food in her stomach and undigested food in her esophagus. As she walked throughout the mall, she encountered still more people. She, she saw benches, she saw chairs, she saw counters, she touched objects in stores, she touched objects throughout the, the mall. We also know from the evidence that as she left the mall, somewhere between 9.30 and 10 o'clock, the mall closing time, she would have walked up to an exit door, pushed that door to go out of the stores. She was not wearing gloves. We know that from the evidence and from the photographs of the crime scene. She had a scarf around her neck, knotted around her neck. As she went out to her car, there were no witnesses to what happened there. Hours later, when investigators came to the scene in search of where she might have been, they found her huddled in the, the lower part of the passenger side of the car, dead from multiple stab wounds. She was in her parents' car, a car that her mom and dad had driven. She, of course, had been brutally stabbed. And as we know from the autopsy report and the photographs, all of the stab wounds, except for a couple, were inflicted and penetrating open flesh, which is an important thing for us to remember as we go along in tracking what happened that day. We know also as well from Dr. Feaster and from the investigators, there was no evidence that this was a sexual assault. The investigation and the evidence that pursued the tracks and the trails that we're going to be following in the next uh, several minutes all stem from the supposition that Michelle Martenko on December 19, 1979, was targeted. Her assailant had rubber gloves. He had a, a substantial knife, or she had a substantial knife. She had been followed, she had been, had been stalked, and she was targeted. She was targeted. The evidence shows, and I'm not going to catalog it uh, exhaustively because you've listened to it carefully, the investigators showed that whoever was equipped with these instruments of death was prepared and carried out a mission that had been accomplished only by preparation and planning. The wounds, in fact, aside from the wounds that were intended to kill her, were intended to disfigure her. Now, investigators found that inside the car that the car interior was blood spattered. There was fur throughout the car from her rabbit fur coat. They also found that there was no trail of blood or blood drops around the car, no indication that someone had carried out blood outside the car or had left a trail of blood from a wound. We also know that in moving the car that, uh, that night, 
Investigators had to get inside of the car, turn the ignition to on, turn the shifter to neutral so that the car could be towed to the Cedar Rapids Police Department. Throughout the investigation that, that ensued from that point on, the handling of the evidence, the integrity of the evidence is critically important. Because remember, we're dealing with a situation involving cells, involving genetic material, involving minute pieces of evidence. And all of that evidence has to be carefully handled and carefully considered throughout the course of the entire investigation. We know that at the autopsy that uh, Michelle's clothes were taken off from her. They were turned over to investigators from the Cedar Rapids Police Department, where they were then taken to the Cedar Rapids Police Department to be dried and cataloged. The course of that evidence from that day forward is critically important to your consideration of the, both the integrity of the investigation, the integrity of the evidence, and the uses to which that evidence has been put in this case. Over the next few decades, we know from Investigator White, from Investigator Kincaid, from the criminalists who examined this evidence in Des Moines and Ankeny, that the evidence, specifically the clothing, was bundled together. Now, why is that important? We know from investigators who testified about their long experiences as identification officers that bundling together of items like that is not proper police procedure. <coughs> why? Because it leads to the cross-contamination of items bundled together. Now, much has been made in this case about whether or not there was any outside influence or any outside contamination. And I don't believe that there probably is any evidence of any outside contamination. But within the bundles of clothing, as you heard from Dr. Spence, you heard from Mike Peterson, that there was a very real danger of the exchange and the distribution of genetic material, which is going to be important throughout the course of your consideration and your evaluation of this case. And it's because of this, because of this very real danger, as Mike Peterson described it, that we have urged you to be especially attentive to the way the evidence was handled and the uses to which that evidence has been put. Now, again, I'm not going to exhaustively catalog the evidence uh, that you've heard throughout the course of this case. You've been studious and very attentive to the details and the importance of the details that you've heard from the testimony and from examining the witnesses. I do want to recall, as uh, you all know, that we've heard from Dr. Spence, we've heard from a number of other witnesses that as we go about our day-to-day -day activities, that there is an exchange, poss possibilities of exchange of, of genetic material. We could probably go to this microphone and find uh, the genetic uh, fingerprints of everybody who's testified during the course of this case. On your bench rail, on your hands, on the chairs that you've been sitting in. We know from the uh, testimony of um, Richard White, one of the first investigators on the scene and the one who kind of supervised the investigation. But when he gathered up the material and, 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 and had it placed into storage in evidence of the Cedar Rapids Police Department, that care was taken to make sure that it was maintained in a proper stored facility in proper stored conditions. But remember when uh, Dick White looked at the tag from Exhibit 17K and looked at the packaging, he said that I never would have signed that D. White, I would have signed it R. White. We know from uh, uh, Dennis Murphy, the investigator who repackaged this material in 1996, that he couldn't understand why there was a discrepancy between the dates of December 1979 and December 1980. Murphy speculated that perhaps the 
material hadn't, hadn't even been packaged during that entire year, and it was being packaged for the first time in 1980. Now, of course, we don't know that that's not the case because we know that in uh, early 1980, the dress was sent off to the FBI laboratory in Virginia for determination of whether the blood on the dress was uh, human blood and what type it was. But somewhere between December of 1979 and December of 1980, this material had gone to the FBI laboratory, returned, but we don't know where and when it had been during that period of time. We also know from Mr. Murphy that in, in December of 1996, he repackaged the evidence. It was bundled together. He was uncertain about exactly uh, where it had been during that period of time, but nonetheless, it had been bundled together. And again, as Mike Peterson said, and other witnesses have testified, that bundling together created a real danger of contamination within that package. In January of 1997, the uh, evidence was sent to the Division of Criminal Investigations Laboratory in Des Moines, where Mike Peterson examined the dress, the pantyhose, and the panties. Again, it was uh, sealed up in uh, one big package, and uh, Mr. Peterson testified that he looked through it. We also know from his testimony that in examining that material, he also looked at the shifter with the extract of the blood from the shifter, item I. In 2003, we know that uh, Linda Sawyer also examined the same items. I think I'm not going to exhaustively catalog all the examinations that took place. But when she examined the material in 2003, again, she had seen it in 2002, she noticed that the scarf and the pantyhose at this point were back in that package. I, uh, in, importantly, she did not examine either the scarf or the pantyhose. <coughs> we also know from testimony throughout the course of the trial that when she was looking at the panties, she found a few spermatozoa that were recovered from the, the crotch of the underwear. An effort was made to determine whether there was any genetic material available for testing. And at that time, in 2003, there wasn't enough there to determine a DNA profile. Through 2002, 2003, and on into 2005, this material was packaged and repackaged. And you remember you hear, uh, I believe, both uh, Paul Bush, who uh, came in on rebuttal, and from Dr. Spence, that the packaging and repackaging, especially if the material is dry inside, can cross-contaminate. It can become brittle, break off, relocate within the, the fabric of, of the material that, that it contains. All of those are important matters. Now, Dr. Spence talked about the, uh, the handling and the repackaging, the transfer of genetic material between items bundled together. This is not just phony stuff or something that was made up. This is important scientific information that's invaluable and necessary for your critical appraisal of all of the evidence in this case. We're resting, remember, this case on cells, on genes, and based on the small, minute amounts of information that are being transmitted between items of clothing or between objects and clothing, between persons and objects, all of that minute detail, detail is extremely, extremely important. We also know, as, um, as we narrow down here on the critical items of evidence, that in 2005, when Linda Sauer examined, again, the dress, the pantyhose, and the panties, and once again, this items, these items were bundled together. We know that she identified some additional spots, both on the front and the back of the dress, uh, item 7A. 
She described in detail how she'd gone about doing that. She used what she described as an alternative light source to try to find difference in textures on the giraffes, and that's how she was able to spot the uh, blood spot that we're going to be evaluating here in just a minute, item F5. We also know, she described in detail, that she had used a, uh, a swab to presumptive test to try to find out if the spot that she had located was blood. Remember, she had used two different uh, types of presumptive tests to identify that F5 was, in fact, blood. Then she took a cutting from that spot to try to get some genetic material from that spot. Item F5 is probably the most important spot in our determination of the integrity of the evidence, but most importantly, the conclusions that are drawn from that evidence. We know that this spot was not discovered until 26 years after the murder. In that 26 years, again, the dress had been packaged, repackaged, examined, re-examined, repackaged multiple times. We also know that in those years, uh, not only had the, uh, uh, the material been packaged and repackaged, but it continued to be bundled together over and over again. The number of times that it was repackaged, we don't know for sure. We know that it was repackaged in uh, going to and from the FBI in, in, 2000, excuse me, in 1980. It was repackaged and being sent to the DCI lab in 1997, again in 2002, 2003, and again in 2005. And when uh, Linda Sauer screened it positive for blood, we know that she used, as I said, a presumptive test, two presumptive tests, that even she could not conclude from the DNA material that she was able to get from that one tiny cutting, whether that male profile DNA came from blood or whether it came from saliva or whether it came from um, mucus or it came from sweat. Again, it's just not Dr. Spence's opinion about this. It was the same opinion reached by Ms. Sauer in her careful review in 2005. Now, uh, importantly, the question has been whether or not that stain in the male profile, later determined to be Jerry Burns' profile, came from blood. Repeatedly, the prosecution has characterized it as blood. Dr. Spence, as he sat here and described it to you, noticed that the extraction note that Linda Sauer had used in identifying the amount of information that she was able to get from that small cutting on the back of the dress, the bottom of the back of the dress, said that there was a 0.062 nanograms per microliter of DNA extracted from that spot. Importantly, he was not saying that that was blood or that was an indication of how much blood was present at that stain. But what he told you, as you recall, is that based on the amount of DNA that was extracted from that spot, he would have expected that there would be a lot more DNA if it had been blood. Not that that's an indication of how much blood was there, merely an indication of how much DNA was in that specimen and that there would have been a lot more DNA if that had been blood. The conclusion, the scientific conclusion, is that the spot there, the stain containing Jerry Burns's DNA, was not from blood. We also know this uh, in part because in years afterwards when four additional cuttings were made from around F5 by DNA labs, they were unable to find any DNA at all. Now, it may have been that in the course of the flood of 2008 that any humidity or moisture may have eradicated that, uh, that DNA if there ever was any additional to be found there. 
But importantly, as Dr. Spence pointed out, when Linda Sawyer used those two presumptive wet swabs to test for blood, it may have been that in doing that, she eliminated any existing DNA at that spot. The importance of that is this. Whatever DNA was there was scant. There wasn't a huge blood stain from Jerry Burns at the back of the dress, and particularly in the very unusual spot where that spot was found. Whatever was there was something other than blood, and that's what the science tells us. Importantly, when Paul Bush came in on rebuttal with the big picture of the investigation that took place at the Iowa Divisional Criminal Investigation Laboratory, even Paul Bush said that based on what was there at, at spot F5, not only could we not determine what biologic material that came from, but there was no other test of the dress for any other biologic material that might reveal a male profile. And that's important, and you'll see why. We know that um, no other items were ever submitted to the Divisional Criminal Investigation after F5 was determined and found by Linda Sauer. And that's important, again, from the instructions that the judge has just given you. We also know that item I, which is the, the extract of the gear shift, was another source of, of, male, of a male profile, and of course, presumably of Jerry Burns. In the examination of that gear shift, everyone who examined it, analyzed it, said that it was a mixture of the DNA. And the important information we learned from Ms. Sauer and from uh, Paul Bush was that mixture, again, could not be determined to be a mixture of blood from one person and the blood of another person. But the partial male profile found at spot I, the extract from the gear shift, could again have arisen from sweat, from saliva, or from mucus. Or importantly, as Mike Peterson said, from skin cells that found their way onto the gear shift. Now, you'll recall that uh, Linda Sauer was somewhat confused about whether she actually examined the gear shift itself or whether, as Mike Peterson did, she had the blood extract from that, from that gear shift. But notwithstanding whether she looked at the gear shift itself or the extract from that gear shift, she too could not conclude whether or not it came from a biologic source other than blood. Um, finally, as we know from uh, Mike Schmidt, the profile, the male profile on that based on some uh, errors in reporting could no longer be reportable to the standards of the DCI. The integrity of that evidence has been called into question. Judge uh, Hoover has told you that in considering the existence of whether or not the state has proved its case by evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, you can consider not only the evidence but also the lack or the failure of evidence produced by the prosecution. And it's our belief that the lack and the failure of important items of evidence in this case are critical to your consideration of Jerry Burns and his guilt. We know uh, from uh, every witness who has testified that the scarf that was found around Michelle Martinko's uh, neck was never, I repeat, never tested. Why is this important at all? We know that the scarf was knotted around her neck. Uh, Dr. Feaster testified about that. And we also know that that scarf was the closest item of clothing between Michelle Martinko and the knife that inflicted her wounds. It was the closest item of clothing between Michelle Martinko and the assailant who killed her. And yet that scarf, removed from a body by Dr. Feaster, submitted to the Cedar Rapids Police Department, packaged up at times, sometimes not packaged up, was never <coughs> examined for the presence of any biologic material by any male 
or anyone other than Michelle Martinko. We also know that the steering wheel from the car, from which a tape lift was made by uh, uh, Richard White, the tape lift that was uh, obtained from that steering wheel was insufficient to find any DNA whatsoever. And yet, as we know, the steering wheel was rich with blood. No further efforts were found to extract a blood sample for any male profile. Amazingly, not only was there no DNA found in the tape lift from that steering wheel, even Michelle Martinko's father's profile was presumably never found on that steering wheel. The panties that were examined by uh, Dr. Feaster, Dr. Feaster said that during his uh, autopsy, a pap smear was done. There was no um, evidence of spermatozoa or semen found on Michelle Martinko's body or in her body. And yet the panties were examined by Linda Sauer in 2003 and found to contain spermatozoa. This isn't just something that we phonied up to create uh, an, an inference of doubt. But importantly, even though that sperm was identified in the panties, in 2003 there was no identifiable male profile found based on technology at that time. But we know from all the witnesses who have testified about the evolution of genetic uh, uh, analysis, the evolution of investigations involving genetic material, that that item, those items could have been re-examined, but they were never retested. There is, in fact, evidence of another male at this crime scene. The dress about which we've heard so much and the evidence that was extracted from that dress, we know from uh, both Paul Bush and from Dr. Spence that there was no further testing done front or back for anything other than blood. It's been exhaustively established, men and women of the jury, that saliva, that mucus, that sweat contains genetic material. And all of that genetic material carried answers to the question of who killed Michelle Martinko. That evidence could have been found in the front of her dress from the exertion of her assailant, from yelling or screaming or sweating. It could be found on the front of her dress. It could be found in her scarf. It was never looked for. Um, as Paul Bush candidly said, you can't find what you don't look for. And that evidence was not looked for. Um, so the concentration of, of the focus of this case has been on F5 and on the extract from the shifter, item I. Based on what was found in those locations, that's where the concentration of this case has gone. And it's our belief that it was the diversion based on that that led to a path to Jerry Burns, but not the path. We've heard impressive statistics about the match, the likelihood of a coincidence, one in 100 billion. We also heard from the, uh, Ms. Nash at, uh, at Bodie Technologies about the inference that can be drawn from the profile found when they re-examine the uh, extract from item I. But again, these statistics are based on an assumption, and that assumption is that F5 is the spot of the killer, that I is the spot of the killer, and that there are no other plausible explanations for where the genetic material that may be on this dress that had been never been located, where those statistics might go wrong. We also know that uh, based on the investigation that uh, Investigator Denlinger pursued, that he, he contacted Parabon, uh, Nanolabs Parabon, Nanolabs constructed a likeness a likeness that was used to try to generate additional leads. And again, we find no fault with that uh, course of investigation. It was creative, it was resourceful, 
important, but in the end, based on the assumption that F5 and I were the genetic material of the killer. We also know that uh, Parabon was again recruited to develop a family tree, and that the family tree was in, in turn used to identify and locate um, the Burns brothers. From the Burns brothers, a straw was obtained from Jerry Burns. That straw was used to develop a profile from his genetic material, and that genetic material was then focused on him. So what about Jerry Burns? Well, we know from the investigation done by the Cedar Rapids Police Department and from his own interview that in 1979, he was a young father, <coughs> married with, at that time, two young children, living in Manchester, Iowa. Manchester, Iowa, the county seat of Delaware County, is uh, about an hour away from this Westdale Mall. <coughs> we also know from the testimony of uh, Investigator Denlinger and from Jerry's own uh, interview that he was working in Elkader, which is uh, north of Manchester. He worked at, in Elkader as a, uh, working for a feed supply company as a salesman. Again, a significant difference, distance away from Westdale Mall in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The uh, scenario um, that has been developed uh, by the prosecution in this case is that Jerry Burns, on December 19, 1979, drove from either Manchester, Iowa, or Al-Qaeda, Iowa, to the Westdale Mall, that he was bent on the destruction of Michelle Martinko. Not only was he bent on her destruction, he had planned to have rubber gloves and a knife to inflict the fatal wounds that killed Michelle Martenko. Now, we do know, of course, that Jerry and his family had shopped at the Westdale Mall. He said as much in his interview. In 79, did you ever have reason to be in Cedar Rapids or anything like that? Not really. Did you go to Westdale Mall? Oh, yeah, we've gone to Westdale Mall. Sure. So, when you were Westdale, when, when you know where you would have gone out there for you know, Christmas shopping or... You know, different times in the years. Sure. Did you ever go there? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Did you ever go there by yourself, like without your family? Not that I know of. Okay. So, no surprise, Jerry Burns and his family had been to Westdale Mall. Now, again, it should come as no surprise that he didn't know exactly where he was on December 19th, 1979. I venture to say that those of you who were around in 1979 couldn't say where you were on that date. Now, much has been made about uh, uh, Jerry's appearance and his candor and his uh, demeanor during the course of this interview. And I uh, challenge anyone to say how you would react or how I would react when faced with information from strangers coming to your office or to your home for the first time. Not only do we know that Jerry and his family had shopped at Westdale Mall and had gone there as a family, I think he said that they also had gone to some movies there. So it's not a surprise that he would know about Westdale Mall, had been there, and told investi Investigator Denlinger that he had been there as fact. Um, much has been made about whether or not Jerry, in being questioned by Investigator Denlinger, denied that he had killed Michelle Martinko. There's no question that he denied that he had killed Michelle Martinko. And as you see from the interview and as you saw with your own eyes, he repeatedly said that he had not. I drank a fair amount when I was younger, but... Sure. Do you think that may, that may have contributed to what happened that night? I don't think anything happened that night. Any reason anyone would, uh, would have written down your plate, your license plate? 
a particular right. button there. Yeah, well, I think we've already established that you were there. I don't think so. We just haven't. Do you know what today is? 19th of December. Did you murder someone that night, Jerry? Just the DNA. Jerry? Just the DNA. Why did this happen, Jerry? Just what, the DNA. What happened? I don't know. You don't know there that night. You don't know why this happened? I was not there that night. I was not there that night. And as Investigator Dunninger told you, not only did Jerry say he was not there that night, but he said it was not possible that his DNA was at this crime scene because he wasn't there. Jerry said repeatedly there wasn't any possibility his DNA would be there or traced to the crime. He also said repeatedly, I was not there that night. Nothing happened that night. And as I said, a note about his demeanor uh, how are we to know how Jerry Burns would react or how any one of us re would react? We can try to put ourselves in his shoes, but the important issue is how did Jerry react and did his repeated denials establish that he did not admit, he in fact denied that he killed Michelle Martingo. We also know in the transport between uh, Manchester when he was arrested and in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, that he was asked a number of questions, a number of which had been identified by the prosecution as incriminating. Now we know that the uh, audio in this interview is, is uh, very difficult to pick up. We're going to listen to just a smidgen of it and then we'll talk about some of the important words and how they were spoken. So Investigator Denninger said, help me understand what was going through your mind. And Jerry said, I don't recollect. Is it possible this happened and you don't remember any of it? I don't know. I'm sure something like that would be possible to block out for somebody to block out. Denninger asked, help me understand what was happening. Help me understand. Jerry says, I don't know. You don't know what was going through your mind? Jerry says, I don't know what's happening. I'm confused about everything. So again, the state scenario here is that Jerry Burns a married man with two young children at home, leaves, drives to Cedar Rapids, Iowa in the night, leaving his wife and children behind, armed with a knife, armed with rubber gloves, goes to Westdale Mall on the chance that he's going to encounter Michelle Martinko, designs to kill her, kills her, uh, muddies up the evidence the best he can, and then leaves and drives back home. Drives back home splattered with blood, with rabbit fur on his coat, presumably with a knife wound in his hand, for which we know he got no medical attention. That's the scenario the government wants you to believe. So to bolster this scenario, we have Michael Allison. Uh, Michael Allison, we know, is uh, an informed consumer of federal criminal law. He's been convicted of conspiracy to commit mail fraud, He's been convicted of drug trafficking multiple times. He's been convicted of human trafficking, bringing illegal uh, undocumented workers from Mexico to the United States. He spent multiple times in federal prison. Not only when he, has he been in federal prison, but when released from federal prison under supervision, violated the uh, conditions imposed by the courts and his probation officers, sent back to prison, been in prison in Mexico for we don't know how long, but finds himself housed by coincidence, at the Lynn County Jail in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And this, as you remember, is the, the photograph uh, that um, uh, <coughs> Lieutenant Steenblock brought to us 
showing the housing situation where Jerry and Mr. Allison were, were housed. We know that uh, Jerry was uh, in the bunk in the upper right, and his, right next to his bunk was uh, Mr. Allison's bunk to, his, to, the, to the left. In between the two bunks was a box, and uh, on that box were envelopes, envelopes containing, containing what are described as discovery materials. And as you know from the testimony we received from Investigator Denninger and from Mr. Uh, Allison as well, discovery materials are the investigative reports, witness statements, other material that uh, detail the state's investigation. Now in state court, individual defendants are allowed to have those discovery materials with them at the jail. In federal court, the federal inmates are not allowed to have that information at the jail. So uh, in between those two bunks was the box with the envelopes containing the investigative reports and other material that Mr. Burns was permitted to have with him to assist in his representation and assist in his preparation for trial. Now we also know from the uh, uh, evidence introduced by the prosecution that the two cell reports, the bunk reports for uh, Mr. Allison and Mr. Burns, that they were housed in the same unit. And as you go through these uh, documents, you'll be able to see the dates and times during which Jerry was in uh, the cell unit, the times during which uh, Mr. Allison was in his cell unit. And as you compare them together, you'll be able to see that between the beginning of December and the uh, end of January, when Mr. Allison met with Mr. Maybanks and Investigator Denlinger, that there were multiple times during those times when Jerry was not in his cell and when uh, Mr. Allison was in his cell. In other words, Mr. Allison had access to Jerry Burns' discovery material. He also had access to the media accounts about Jerry's case on television and in the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Importantly, you'll be able to see that over the course of the period of time between December 8th and uh, January 28th or 29th, that uh, Allison was in the cell while Jerry was not for more than 25 hours. Now, the Michael Allison saga also requires us to look a little bit at the chronology involving his prosecution in federal court. <clears throat> we know that on November 21st, Mr. Allison signed what's called a plea agreement. This plea agreement is a letter between uh, the United States Attorney prosecuting him and Mr. Allison's lawyer. And in this plea agreement, it talks about not only the consequences that Mr. Allison was facing as a federal, uh, 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 indicted in a federal case, but also the agreement that had been reached about the disposition of the case, how it might resolve, and importantly, the facts that supported Mr. Allison's decision at that time to plead guilty. And as you look through Defendant's Exhibit H1, which is the plea agreement, you remember Mr. Allison admitted that at the time when he initialed every one of the paragraphs in that exhibit, he agreed with the factual accuracy of each one of those paragraphs. And in that uh, uh, plea agreement, you're going to see the extent to which uh, Mr. Allison is a master manipulator. He has been, uh, in the facts of that case, been able to hoodwink his own co-conspirators steal money from his own co-conspirators, and in fact, uh, take money in exchange for drugs that he, he failed to deliver. Not only that, he preyed upon another co-conspirator in that case who was just getting out of drug treatment, persuaded that person, <coughs> after they got out of drug treatment, to get back involved in the drug trade. He's a, manas a master manipulator. Now we know on December 4th, as he told you, that he agreed to plead guilty to this federal indictment, charging him with conspiracy. And in part of the agreement, 
he and the United States attorney agreed that he should get a sentence lower than what the federal sentencing guidelines said he would ordinarily be subject to. This agreement, called an 11C1C agreement, based on a provision of the federal criminal rules, says that a judge has to agree to that sentence, and if the judge refuses to agree to the sentence, then the defendant can withdraw his guilty plea. We know that on December 6th, he met before a district, or a district court judge reviewed the plea agreement and said, I'm going to reject it. I'm going to reject it. So at this point, the judge on January 6th scheduled a hearing on January 15th to decide whether or not to allow Mr. Um, Allison to withdraw his guilty plea and try to renegotiate another one, presumably much less, less favorable. January 6th. On January 11th, we know this is the date on which uh, Mr. Allison obtained his notorious autograph from Cherry Burns. This, men and women of the jury, was a setup. Um, Michael Allison uh, told his probation officer uh, early on in a federal criminal case in, in California that he had lied about having a mental illness so he could get into a treatment unit in a federal prison and that he used his mental illness as a bargaining chip. On uh, January 23, just uh, a week and a half after this autograph was obtained from Jerry Burns, Mr. Allison goes to his lawyer and tells his lawyer that he's got information on Jerry Burns. On January 28th, Mr. Allison met with Mr. Maybanks and Mr. Denlinger and told this story about what he had learned from Jerry in the jail. Just as uh, Mr. Allison was a master manipulator throughout his criminal career, he had developed another bargaining chip using Jerry Burns. It is a concoction. Judge Hoover, in her instructions to you, has told you that in your consideration of whether or not the government's case has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt, that you must consider not only the evidence, but also the lack or the failure of evidence in this case. And I suggest uh, that there are two important things that have not been proven and cannot be proven in this case. First, we cannot conclude that Jerry Burns's blood is the source of the DNA on the dress at spot F5 on the gear shift selector item I. It cannot be determined based on the testimony from Ms. Sauer, from Mike Peterson, from Mike Schmidt, from Paul Bush, Mike Spence. They're all in agreement that it cannot be said that that is Jerry Burns's blood. We also know that it can't be said <clears throat> how that DNA arrived on F5 or at item I. We know from what we've seen time and time again, the people that we touch, the things that we touch, the things that touch us are transmitters of DNA. All the expert witnesses said they cannot determine when that DNA was arrived on the dress or on the shifter. They can't say how. In the absence of those two big things, there's been a lack and a failure of evidence produced by the prosecution. The judge has instructed you about reasonable doubt. <clears throat> the judge has said that, that uh, reasonable doubt can arise from the evidence or the lack or the failure of evidence produced by the prosecution. It's the kind that would cause a reasonable person to hesitate to act. And additionally, the evidence presented to you by the prosecution must be so convincing that you would not hesitate to rely on it and act on it. Um, <clears throat> we're talking here about scintillas of evidence. And reasonable doubt, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is more than just an instruction. 
Reasonable doubt is a, a living embodiment of what justice is all about. Reasonable doubt is an embodiment of the fact that we all know that even good people, by virtue of coincidence, by virtue of their race, by virtue of their circumstance, can find themselves unjustly connected to a bad event. We know that, and that's why any evidence has to be convincing beyond any reasonable doubt. We're talking here about evidence from a cell, from saliva, a cell that contains a partial amount of Jerry Burns's DNA. The evidence in this case must be so convincing that you would not hesitate, not only hesitate, but you would not hesitate to act. Uh, your allegiance, as the judges told you, is to the law and to the facts. Your solemn obligation as jurors is to the law and the facts. Based on the uncertainty, based on the handling of the evidence, the real danger of cross-contamination, the fact that Michelle Martinko navigated throughout the Westdale Mall, areas where the Burns family had shopped, it cannot be said with your allegiance to the law and the facts that Jerry Burns is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Your verdict must be not guilty. Thank you, Mr. Speed. Good afternoon, members of the jury. Our court attendant informed me that you have reached a verdict. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, if you would please hand that uh, ver verdict form to Ms. Larson. Thank you. The verdict appears to be in order. The members of the jury uh, through the foreman have signed verdict form number one. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jerry Lynn Burns, guilty of the charge of murder in the first degree, dated this 24th day of February 2020, signed by the foreman of the jury, Mr. Lynch. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, thank you again. Uh, at this time, uh, we will excuse you. I will be in in just a few minutes uh, to thank you again and answer any questions that you have. Please rise for the jury. And at this point, Mr. Burns will be held uh, with, without bond, uh, given the fact that it, this is a forcible felony. Okay, thank you, folks. We will be adjourned. So what do you guys think? If you were on this murder trial jury, would you have voted guilty or not guilty? Let me know your thoughts. Next time, I'm going to review this case a little bit and recap a lot of the details we've talked about and a few of my personal thoughts on this case. Until then, lock your doors, people. Bye-bye. Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. Please subscribe to True Crime IRL wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving a five-star review. Go to truecrimeirl.com for more information. Support the show by becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also support the show by leaving a tip in the TCIRL tip jar. Go to truecrimeirl.com and click on the donate button. Or buy merch in the TCIRL merch shop. truecrimeirl.com slash merch. Watch True Crime IRL on YouTube 
YouTube at youtube.com slash kellybrinktv. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at True Crime IRL, all one word. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. 